The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our most heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, your kindness. We thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you for your church. I thank you for this community gathered here to sit under and to study your word, to be to, not just to know your word, but to be known by your word, to be shaped and formed, expanded, uh, grown, to be, uh, to be more like you uh, in your word, Lord God. And so we just ask that you would um, be our teacher today. We sit at your feet, that you would uh, share with us uh, your grace and your wisdom, and we ask that you would plant it deeply in our hearts for your own glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is just so great to see all of you here today. My goodness, this is maybe our biggest crowd yet on a home game Sunday. I am so proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servants. We are so nice. Yeah, and like it's like a super nice day outside. You could you could be going and picnicking. So you don't uh, if you're here, but um, but. It was probably the biscuits. It was probably the biscuits that brought you. Paul is taking them away, but if you, in the last chance, last chance biscuits are out the door. All right. We are, this is week eight of eight in part nine. So I don't know how many weeks we've been doing uh, uh, Matthew. Somebody made the comment to me this week uh, that is not actually a regular part of this, this study, but it just said, that's a long time to be in Matthew. Uh, <laughs> a long time. I hope that you don't, I mean, I would say, hopefully the numbers suggest that you're not tired of it, uh, and I hope that you don't feel like I have to, I can't come because, because I didn't, uh, I didn't come last week, although I hope that if you um, are here this week, it makes you want to come next week. Um, anyway, just all that to say, I think we'll be done by, with Matthew, I'd have to look at it specifically, but I think we'll be done by the end of the semester uh, with Matthew, or maybe just a little bit afterwards. I'd love to know what you'd like to do. Um, after that, I'm actually thinking about doing something topical, at least uh, through Easter, uh, going through different topics. I've got a couple ideas about that. But anyway, uh, nevertheless, we are in Matthew chapter 20 today, the end of chapter 20. We've uh, left Galilee, as you know, because I, I've, I've told you where we are just about every week. We were for, for It seemed like for months and months and months we were headed to Peter's confession. Now Peter's confessed. We're now we're headed to Jerusalem. And we stayed in, in Galilee for a while, and then we finally left a week or two ago. And today we make the final turn towards uh, Jerusalem. We're on the road uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, P- Peter made his confession, and we have since then been looking at discipleship, that is following Christ, walking in the application of our faith with, um, with Christ uh, discipleship as death and resurrection. Sometimes I think discipleship can be a sort of scary word. It seems it sounds very formal. It sort of sounds so holy and, and otherly uh, for us. But it is just a matter of being a disciple. It's just a matter of being a follower of Jesus, one who wants to be shaped by His Word, His Spirit, who wants to be like Him, one who has uh, wants to grow into the fact that He died and rose for us. That's all discipleship is, but it does require death to ourselves. It requires, um, it requires, in order to be like Christ, it requires putting away the things that are in our lives that are not like Christ. Now, that's not a requirement for salvation. It is a requirement for sanctification. Salvation is a gift of grace. It is that grace of working in us that makes um, dear to us the things we ought to do. 
So, whereas before we knew Christ, we had to do this, and it drives people away from the church, right? How many people do you know that went that don't go to church because they, um, it's too many rules. All these things I'm supposed to be doing that the church wants me, wants to shoehorn me into this, this being this type of person. The law is repugnant to us until we receive grace. And we realize we're not doing those things in order to gain God's favor, but we've been granted and graced with God's favor, and then the law becomes dear to us. So we're putting to death those things that are not like Christ, and we're being resurrected to the things that are like Christ. Um, so we're dying to ourselves. Um, it feels, so for instance, it feels good to you know, sort of bless out our neighbor. Well, I shouldn't say bless. That, that might be confusing. But you know what I mean, right? You, you bless someone out. You're from the South. You blessed someone out before. Um, and, and, um, or been blessed out. Um, um, and, and it feels good to do that when they irritate us, but we die to that impulse because we are to love our neighbor. Right? That's, that's the call in our life. And because God has called us, and it's God that's called us, we want to, want to do the thing that He wants us to do. It feels good to do whatever we want to do sexually or uh, relationally, but we die to that impulse because we trust the Lord and His Word even beyond what we can see. It feels justified to fight against our spouse or to hoard all of our money or to promote ourselves above other people. Those will feel right and natural and justified, but we die to those things trusting that the Lord will provide and care for us. Right? Death, but there's all, there's, so there's death, but there is resurrection. And, and I just, uh, I just remember um, a conversation that I had. It always sticks out to me. I don't know if this, uh, I don't know if you had a revelation like this, but it was a con- I was a living. It was right after college. And I was, I was living in Colorado, but I just, it was even before I really understood grace. But I just remember saying to this friend of mine, "I just love being a Christian. I just love being a Christian. I would want this life, even if the next life weren't promised." Uh, I just feel like it fills me up. Now I have an all, you know. There's, I have my moments, um, but but it is uh, we're resurrected to better, right? We're we're give, what we have without the things that we've put away is better and richer. That's why Jesus says when you, uh, you know, remember a couple weeks ago Peter said we've left everything. What about us? And he says you're going to get a hundredfold more. Doesn't mean you're going to be super rich. Just means not on the outside, but super rich on the inside. Super rich. It's all a part of taking up our cross. So we have these uh, final lessons uh, on the way. And it's it's first strange is that the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, kneels before him, but they're on the road. So there must not just be the twelve. There must be an entourage of people, or at least, you know, James and John's mom is tagging along. Uh, She's sort of a helicopter mom, but um, not really sure. Uh, It doesn't say much about the entourage, the extra entourage, but but she's there. And she comes to them. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So remember, Zebedee was, was their dad. And I always thought, like, poor Zebedee, but if you've ever watched The Chosen, anybody watch The Chosen? It's just, incre- I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a moot or a series based on the life of Christ. And usually those things are super cheesy. And um, this is excellent, excellent, excellent. And Zebedee is just like blown away with gratitude that God would choose his sons. So good for, good for them. So the sons of Zebedee, so it's Zebedee's wife now is following him too, 
came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? And she said, say to these two sons of mine, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, <laughs> this is, Jesus is so subtle sometimes, I love it, right? You don't know what you're asking. You, know, um, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you as his followers. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. If you remember from last week, um, we had the laborers in the vineyard, which is all about which which is uh, enunciating the the truth that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and uh, and then Jesus foretells his death for a third time. He's very specific. He's going to be not just put to death uh, by the authorities, but killed, uh, crucified by the the Pharisees. Who have handed him over to Gentiles, and um, and and of course flogged and, and crucified and raised on the third day. And this is when they come to him. Uh, um, it's a little unclear as to exactly what their motivation is. But are they saying, "Listen, we hear you're going to die. We need to get while the getting's good." Um, or are we? Are they hearing that there is going to be greatness in the resurrection, and we want to be part of that? It's, it's actually not clear. I'd like to make fun of them for being total knuckleheads, but um, but it's 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 possible that they are really looking to the sort of celestial kingdom uh, in the resurrection. Uh, but it is. But it does. In 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 any sense, they are asking for authority. They're asking for glory. They're asked to be the prime minister and the vice regent, right? The vice president. Um, and and Matthew, essentially Matthew shows us that, that their helicopter mom comes and asks for them, as if these grown men can't ask for themselves. You know this. You know the the um, there is a phenomenon lately that, I, that gets a lot of press that that you know young people and maybe even sometimes not so young people interview for a job and their mom comes up and calls it in as their as their number one reference or something like that. That's, um, and and it's just it just seems that they have not understood that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean clearly they're not asking may I please be last in your kingdom. And that does not seem at all. When he said one to sit at your left and one to sit at your right um, they're not saying, can we be the best servants? They're, being, can we have, they're saying, can we have the most glory? Can we have the most authority, the most power uh, in your kingdom? And, and it is, uh, 
it's, they have not understood that first shall be last and last shall be first. And, and, and of course they haven't. Because none of us do. Because that's totally unnatural. Uh, it is. Why, why would they understand that? Um, it, I would say it takes years. It, it, it might even say it takes a whole lifetime for us to actually be convinced that in service uh, there, is, there is greatness. And, um, and in humility that there is strength. This is, you know, this is the, uh, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Like, um, that doesn't make any sense. So many things in the gospel don't make any sense. It's upside down in, in, in that sense. And, um, and so, I mean, if I, were, if I, think, I feel like if I were to hear that message, uh, being with, being where they are, you don't be great, you don't become great by trying to be great, you become great by being a servant. Well, great, what am I going to go do? I'm going to go be a servant. Why? So I can be great. And so, if, if I'm not supposed to be ambitious in order so I can be great, uh, but I'm going to go out and serve my guts out so I can be great, am I still ambitious? Yes. That seems like a catch-22. <laughs> That's a, there is a, there's, um, that seems like a pit to, to fall in. You, you're still seeking your own glory. So what do you do with that? Yeah, Craig. Well, I think... One thing that I try to understand is that uh, everything God is love and everything that God does is for us. Even for the fact that He asks us to come to church and to worship Him is so we can have a better understanding of Him and have a better relationship with Him. So everything He does is out of love and is for us. And for us to be servants and slaves is to ask us to be more like Him. And I think that's the concept of the whole thing is that he's just trying to not make us slaves but to actually make us more like him. Yes, indeed. I mean, God is not this raging narcissist, although he has every right to be. Um, but he, there is, yes, it's for his glory, yes, it's for our good, mutually. Um, it's amazing to think I mean, we might hear God loves it. You hear this all the time. God loves you. God loves you. It's amazing to hear that God likes you. That He delights in you. Because we do stuff like this, right? That He just looks at this and goes, I just, I can't wait to see what this, I can't wait till this knucklehead becomes what, what he or she is supposed to be. You know, like, that there's love and delight and patience and goodness, perhaps not affirmation all the time. Um, it's good for the mother to bring a request to Jesus. It's not good that they are seeking to elevate themselves above the other disciples. Why, why are the other ten indignant? It's not fair. Well, maybe have a mother to get there first. Yeah. My mom's not here, right? It's interesting. Mark doesn't show that the mother is there. They, they come and ask themselves. So it's, it's interesting that Matthew sort of shields them in that sense. I don't know, you know, it's not for us to know whether or not she, what her role was exactly in that. 
I, I, I mean, maybe I'm just cynical. I just always feel like they're upset because they beat him to the punch. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 why do you get to be the, the vice president? I want to be the vice president. You would think Peter, you know, like, of course, he's the one that always is speaking up. He's, he's the natural leader. He gets himself in trouble sometimes. But, uh, but doesn't, isn't he the one uh, that ought to be? And they, they want to sort of supersede. They were there with they were there with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, just alongside too. So, John, did they miss the the, the parable of a few weeks earlier with the wedding guest? Oh, we remind me, what, remind me about that. To explain what you're talking about. Would you go and sit at too high a seat and you have to get bumped down? Yes. Did they did they miss that day? <laughs> did they miss that day? Yeah. Well, they were they were actually uh, their mom had them off doing some errands. So, uh, there to say the and just like, well, have yeah. Yeah, sit, uh, come lower, brother. Uh, the, uh, so, so it is, it, it is remarkable in, in that sense, but actually what Jesus does is he grants them what they, in a sense, what they want. I mean, we look in Revelation, we see 12, um, actually 24 thrones around the, um, uh, around the, the throne of Christ. 24 thrones being the 12 disciples and the 12 um, patriarchs. Sort of sitting on an equal plane. But it is... Um, uh-oh. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Um, yeah, it was sort of a senior moment. Um, I had a really, really excellent point. Don't uh, stop, 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 stop. I, the truth is, I'm more senior now than I've ever been in my life. Uh, so, um, uh, it's a joke. It's a joke. Okay, we all are. All right. Uh, oh, what Jesus actually does is grant them their request, except like everything else, he flips it upside down. Can you drink the cup? Do you know what the cup is? What is what is what is the cup? Sacrifice. Is suffering. I mean, if we look through the Old Testament, that is a, a, a repeated uh, metaphor, a repeated way to talk, especially in the Psalms. That it is, in fact, when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, that's what he's talking about. And he actually says to James and John, you're going you're gonna, to, because you're going to follow me, you're going to pick, take up your cross. You're going to die to yourself. In fact, for James, James was an early martyr. And John was not martyred. And I think both of those, there's an incredible suffering in both of those because John was the only one who watched all of his friends, all of his disciples die, and he did not. Yet he suffered, in fact, in not just in their death, but he suffered in exile in Patmos. And that's when he saw had the revelation to, um, uh, to well, the revelation. Um, so it is... Uh, it's a, it's a, it is, they're being called to drink the cup, they're being called to die to themselves. And, and in fact, for, like I said, for James, it was, it was actual death. I thought of a, a story uh, that I, it's a true story uh, from, from history. George, you'll like this, you may know this story. In the 1700s, there was a German nobleman named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. You know this name, Zinzendorf, von Zinzendorf? The, um, the Mennonites all know Zinzendorf. He was born into great power and privilege, uh, and when he was 19, he was sent to visit all the great cities of Europe as part of his 
elite education. And one day he found himself in the art gallery of Dusseldorf, Germany, as you do, and gazing at a portrait of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. It's a portrait by Domenico Fetti called Ecce Homo, and, um, and you can still see it today, I understand. But this young count was deeply moved, uh, and the Spirit spoke to him just as he was staring at this image of Jesus uh, before his crucifixion. He was overcome with the reality of Jesus' crucifixion, that, that Jesus' crucifixion was God's love and grace for him. So staring at, this, at God's own suffering, he realized that, or this portrayal of God's own suffering, he realized that that was actually a, a, a manifestation of God's love for him personally. And he looked at the inscription below the painting, which read, All this I did for thee, what thou doest, what doest thou for me? All this I did for thee, what doest thou for me? Now, Again, before grace, perhaps, we look, that, look at that as a sort of tit-for-tat. Hey, I've sacrificed. Now you owe me. But actually, on the other side of grace, what we see is that, is that how, the question really is, how will you live into the transformation that I've offered you? How will, you, um, be, um, how will the law become dear to you? How will you um, be that servant? And... His heart was captured, uh, not merely by the beauty of the painting, but by the beauty of God's love for a sinner such as himself. And, and he, um, over the years, he spent his wealth practically down to zero. He poured his life out for this, in the service of others for Christ and died an incredibly, extraordinarily influential, rich man, if not in dollars, certainly in cents as it were. Um, so, um, it, was, it was because of God's grace, it was all, his service was for Christ, for the glory of Christ. He poured himself out like a drink offering because of what God had done for him in Christ. That's the cup that um, I think we are, we are called to partake in. That is the sort of the death and resurrection. I mean, there, there's there's from the world's perspective, that it, what Zinzendorf did doesn't make any sense, does it? Spend down your wealth for the good of other people. No, this is your family inheritance. This is for you to protect and preserve. He did it for others in the service of Christ because it was for the glory of Christ. And I just wonder, like, what, does, what might that look like in our society? What might that look like in your life or in our church? For us to drink the cup. How would you know? Yeah, Rick. When you when you say when you first read that inscription, and and I fell right into it. It says it sounded like okay, great. I've done all this for you. Now what are you going to do for yeah. me? But then as I thought on it more, it's more like all right. I've done all this for you. Now I've given you this gift. Now how are you going to use it? Yes. Which is different uh, entirely. Yes. Then what am I going to get back? Yeah, it's not what it's, it's not what do I what am I going to get out of this deal? It's how are you going to spread this word? Show me how you're going to use this gift. Yes. Thanks. And also, how are you going to acknowledge? Mm -hmm. How are you going to acknowledge or show others what I have done for you? 
I think for James and John and the fruit of their life after this, this point, certainly after the resurrection, um, I mean, there, there's absolutely nothing more important in their life than this, than drinking this cup on a daily basis. There is absolutely nothing more uh, driving, more inspiring, more uh, urgent than to live their lives uh, for Christ. And in fact, uh, what we see Jesus say sort of when the, he calls the, the ten or the twelve together because the ten are upset with, with the two and, and he says, that this, you're acting like the world. Um, and that's what he means when he calls the Gentiles. He doesn't mean just you know, that people group over there. He, just mean, he means all, all people outside of God's, uh, God's family. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That is to say that, that the, the first shall be first. The first shall be great. That's the way of the world. Um, but it shall not be so among you. Now, this does not mean that none of you should aspire to positions of authority in your jobs or in your neighborhoods or, or in your community, whatever, whatever it is. It, it means that, that you use the gift that has been given to you for the glory of God. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, here's the thing, all this I've done for you, what now doest, what doest thou for me? Uh, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And you think of, uh, Jesus had every right to come to be served. It doesn't, it, again, it doesn't make any sense. It's upside down. The King of glory, the maker of heaven and earth would come and, and be born in the circumstance that he was born into and be, not have anywhere to lay his head. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That he came to serve rather than to come and, and get the glory that he's deserved. His glory was his service. His throne was his cross. And the vindication, of course, is the resurrection. So, this is sort of the final, I think, the final piece of, of death and resurrection as discipleship. And then we say, and we see, we're moving towards chapter 21 and the triumphal entry, but he says, as they went out of Jericho, so we weren't told that they came into Jericho, but you know Jericho. Jericho is, is at, the, at the bottom, bottom, bottom. It's um, uh, 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,900 feet above sea level. It is, Jericho is the city of, of where it was cursed, um, and the walls came and tumbled down. Um, and they're leaving the cursed city and heading up the hill. Um, this is the path, the road that's still there today. That's the Good Samaritan Road um, that Jesus uh, uses in the parable. Anyway, this is that's they're coming out of Jerusalem. I mean, out of Jericho, and so we know that like they're close. Right? It's it's a it's a half a day's walk, maybe six hours, something like that. A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, in the other two gospel accounts, there's just one blind man. Now, I have to tell you, I think that Matthew gives us two blind men because they represent James and John. who can't see. And Jesus gives them sight. That's what, that's what I think Matthew is doing. 
There are two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that what he asked James and John's mother? What do you want? He said. Not, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, let our eyes be open. Isn't that the request of a, of a disciple? Lord, let my eyes be open. In, in, in that constantly what, we, what we're praying and asking for when we come to the Scriptures, isn't that what we want from Jesus? I rec- Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, isn't there this sense in which we're always asking Jesus to open our eyes? And that's where we see James and John as they head towards, and they, and they get the last lesson uh, in death and resurrection, and they head towards the cross and towards the triumphal entry and all of this, the last week of Jesus. Um, there's this urgency about the disciples, even though we can't, so we want to. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. So they got up from where they were and they took off up the road to Jerusalem as well. There's a death to their own life even though there's a resurrection to new sight. It's framed as mercy. This revelation. This ability to see. And and that I think is is the, the hope that we're called for. That's the resurrection. This new sight. That, it, that, that finally, by the mercy of God, the touch of Jesus, that, that we are actually able to see what it means and to, to aspire to the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Not out of selfish ambition, but out of love for God and a, and a desire to see Him lifted up. So it's, it's interesting, there's... There's several stories throughout the Gospels of Jesus healing people from blindness. He never does it the same way twice. Sometimes He just touches them. Sometimes He spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on their eyes. It's gross, but this is is what... He never does it the same way twice. He's always wanting to open the eyes of the blind, but um, there's the one time where he, 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 uh, He touches... He touches their eyes and they see. Well, we can see, but we can't see very clearly. Everybody looks like trees walking around. And he touches them again. And then, like I said, there's this progression that happens. He never does it the same way. Because he never works in your life the way he's going to work in your life. In the way he works in my life. In the way he works in your life. He, he's just, he works in each person's life differently. But we're all called to drink the cup. We're all called to new sight. So, I, I just, you know, I think that... Um, that's pretty much what I have to say about that. I'd love to know what your uh, reaction to it is um, and how that, what that looks like in your life. Do you feel an urgency to see as Christ would have you to see? Yes. Yes. Do you, do you call out, Lord, help us to see? Richard. Yeah, I, I've been uh, love this uh, 
flashed in my heart. I do not ask that you do more for me, but do more through me. You couldn't hear what Richard said. He said, I'm, I'm, that he felt like the Lord spoke to him. I'm not asking you to do more for me, but do more through me. That's right. Is that how I say that right? Yeah. I like that. I like that. What would it look like in your life? It's hard to know if you're blind what it looks like to see, right? But What is that um, urgency? How might that urgency take shape in your life? Yes? When things aren't going as well or when you're struggling, it takes a moment of urgency, but I think that's when you reach out more, or what is he trying to do? Tell me, show me, help me see. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so Barb said when, when, there's, when there's difficulty in our lives, and I would say yes, indeed, that certainly is, is, are times where it brings clarity to us and, and reminds us how much we need the Lord to intervene. Um, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I, I, I think sort of ideally we also want to be, have that urgency when, when it's not urgent, you know, when, it, when we're not in trouble. You know, that we do want to have a love for the Lord that draws us to Him even when we're not in a crisis moment. But it, those crisis moments can be a gift. Our blindness can be how we receive the, the, the mercy and the touch uh, of Jesus. I mean, Richard, if I can share your story, you were just telling me the other day that how that um, through losing part of your sight, you actually, like that was, you have found that to be God's mercy to you that you've known His touch more than you ever had. Um, before, yeah, um, because you you've gone through diff- not just not just the fact that it was blind not blindness but a difficulty in sight but but it it was it was adversity it was needing the Lord hit things things in your life got stripped away because of that and He filled in that a hundredfold. You were gonna say something, Josh? Yeah, this is Doc's uh, comment kind of sheds some light to me on how these two kind of play together. Maybe James and John or their mom or whoever is kind of asking for the wrong thing, right? And you know, the, the blind men getting their sight, you know, it's, uh, uh, you talk about the eyes have been open. It's starting to ask for the right things. And, and what Doc had, was asked for to me is, you know, much more the right thing hmm. than, you know, what James and John were asking for. And it seems like those three all kind of played together. Yeah, learning to ask for the right thing. Oh, maybe that'll be the topical uh, study that we, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And George can teach it. Uh, yeah. Um, yes, George, go ahead. Well, I, I, I just think it's an important aside to recognize that Matthew tells a particularly compelling story here. And if you think about how Jesus called each of the disciples uh, and what they had invested in his ministry, Matthew was sitting, as indeed Levi, as we believe he is, he was called away from his tax booth. Which means he had to give up his connections with the world to follow Jesus. Yes. The fisherman can always go back to fishing. The zealot can always go back to the revolution. But Matthew couldn't go back. So he had a particularly unique way of looking at not only his own ministry, 
but those of the other disciples. Hmm. And in that, he's able to share with us just what we studied today. Because it is unique yeah. perspective. That's a great perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yes, Paul. There's an old hymn that used to touch my heart. We used to sing at the Baptist Church. Open my eyes that I may see <coughs> visions of life of eternity. Mm -hmm. And it goes on. And it just it just opens up just what George was saying. It, what you feel at that time, what touches your heart at that time, and you sing that hymn, that used to mean a lot to me. Well, and of course, Amazing Grace. You know, once was blind, but, but now I see. And I, I think that you know, when I was 15 years old and I gave my life to Christ, I could sing, I once was blind, but now I see. And then when I was 25 or 35 or 45, uh, that looks like blindness. You know, and I hope, by God's mercy and grace, that when I'm 55 and 65 and 85, um, that, and, and on till I get to Jesus, that, that right now will look like blindness. Because that will continue to grow in that. There's always, always uh, opening up. Alicia. Um, I think difficult in blindness, I'm just speaking for myself now, is that people you should love or do love are so hard to love. Hmm. So the people that you should love are so hard to love. I agree with that. Tell me how that works with blindness. To see how to reach. To see how to, how yeah, to, how to love them. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. How to do it. How, how, how to manifest God's love in that, in that blind moment. Yeah, that's another thing George will teach on. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, um, I mean, that is. I, I mean, good gracious, thank you. Thank that. I mean, that's vulnerable. Thank you so much. That is. Uh, I mean, to say I. I don't know. I know I'm supposed to love this person, but number one, I don't want to, and number two, I don't know how to. Yes. And not knowing how. And so I'm not going to. Oh uh, no. Uh, John. Oh, perhaps, yeah, the crowd would have been the ten disciples indignant. Be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's uh, he. It would not be the only time a, a uh, evangelist uses blindness, uh, the blind recovering their sight, as as a metaphor within the context of the narrative. It's a true story, but it's also a, it's placed there to make the make the point. Yeah, that's right. Yes, Katie. I think especially in these times we're living in now, with things being pulled and pushed throughout the world, I've been praying more for wisdom to know what is of the world and what is in the world, and the truth, His truth, and that I might live by it, and not be pulled the other direction. Yeah, there's a lot of things that call for our attention and tell us how important they are. And... Almost none of them are. I mean, I, this is a great blessing, and it can be a great curse. I can't t distraction. Like I can't tell you how many times, like 
I, like, I'll be watching football this afternoon, and I'll start looking at my phone because, like, the simulation I'm getting from the football game is not enough. You know, like, I just, like, or I'll just, I'll be reading, I'll be reading a book, and I'll just pick up my phone to look at it, and I don't even need to see anything on it. Like, it's just a habit. You're laughing because it's true. It's the same. I know. You're not laughing at me because I'm, I'm alone. Uh, the, the best part is when you d- discover that your phone is not in one of your four pockets. Yes. You're somewhere and you have this... Like, sense of panic. S- yeah, I mean the worst. I mean, lithium you need for right. after yeah. that, right? So. Yeah, it is, uh, it, it is very important as, not just as adults training our children, but just as adults acting like children, that we need to... Um, Train ourselves not to be distracted. And, and, and there are just so many things that call for our attention and tell us how important they are. Um, last, two more things. Two more things. Rick and then Brandon. The, uh, the whole blindness thing. These disciples were with Jesus for multiple years. But then you look at St. Paul... He wasn't hanging around with Jesus, and yet his conversion was a lot more extreme, it seemed like. His his blindness and regaining his sight was a lot more dramatic. Yeah, St. Paul was struck with blindness, yeah, yeah. As, a, as a metaphor, again, for his spiritual condition, yeah. But then his regaining his sight was completely different than the sight that he had before. Yeah, scales fell from his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And he saw the whole world differently. Yeah. So, it's a different kind of gaining sight. Yes. Yes. Brandon. Um, <clears throat> this, these two passages together make it pretty clear that the antidote to blindness is humility. Um, or the cure, perhaps, for blindness is humility. These, <clears throat> this dichotomy here across these two serves as a climax, as we, it, a climax in Matthew's narrative here. As we go back, we see Jesus talking over and over about the kingdom of heaven at the beginning of 20, at, uh, there in 19 several times, in 18. Even in the beginning of 18, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, you must be like a child. The constant theme he lays out here, you must be like a child. The rich young man, right? The theme here is humility as he's defining the kingdom for the last time before he enters into Jerusalem. And that's what 21 begins. He's wrapping up, explaining what the kingdom is, and now he's moving on to establish it and to be exalted and coronated as the king. And, and he, he lives that out. The, 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 the answer to the, be the greatest is suffering and humility. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the death and resurrection. I mean, that's what, that is the fruit of death. And, and, and increasingly also the path to it is, is humility. That blessed death that brings us to resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, Hebrews 5, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Yes. Philippians 2, you know, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, becoming a servant all the way to the point of the cross. Yeah. 
And I mean, this is even a retelling of the Pharisee and the sinner. The Pharisee saying, God, thank you for not making me like this guy. And the sinner saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Mm-hmm. That's a, that, I mean, that's exactly this. Yeah. George, if you need help with your study, Brandon, Brandon will be happy to. <laughs> um, this brings us to the end of, of part nine. We start part ten next week with the triumphal entry in Jesus' last week. So wonderful to have such a great big crowd. Um, really great. Time to go to church. Thank <laughs> you.